Hello, friends. Grace and peace. Welcome. Thank you for tuning in. It's such a blessing to be here with you today with my brothers. Today is the series finale of our contrast series, this series in the book of 1 Peter that we've been going through in the last several weeks. My prayer and my hope is that this series has been an encouragement to you during the season as it was for the early Christians when Peter first wrote this letter. Uh, Next Sunday, we are bringing back the Focus One series, uh, which is a series that we launched in the beginning of the year. It's actually an evangelistic campaign for our church, so I hope that you can join us, Uh, but also I hope that you can come because next Sunday we are reopening three of our four campuses, Miami Springs, Brickell, and Pinecrest. Am I right? Yep, that's, that's right. Awesome. And, uh, and we can't wait to see you, to see your friends, to see your family. So as soon as the opportunity comes for you to reserve a spot in that service, please do so. All right? We hope to see you there. And it's, it's doubly exciting because we get to gather again physically, but we're also celebrating 12-year anniversary of Crossbridge. So it's a, a can double you win. That? It's Twelve be years, amazing. man. Twelve and years. We want to do all that we can to protect your health and safety and to follow the guidelines set forth uh, by the CDC, by our local officials. And so if you're wondering how are how will the service look, what are the safety guidelines that we have, you can check out our website. If you just go to crossbridgefamily.com and you will see a button that lists all the guidelines, what can be expected. It's going to be a time of joy. It's going to be a time of celebration. But we're also uh, going to protect you and your family. And so we hope that you'll come if you feel comfortable and if you are not high risk. And that's exciting. We can't wait. But today we get to close, as you said, Felipe, this series contrast, where we're going to see the contrast between our worries and God's care. Oh. Let's get into the text. Church, if you have your Bibles ready, we'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. And this is what God's Word says to us today. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, in light of today's passage, we're going to be asking ourselves three questions. Uh, Firstly, why do we worry? Secondly, how can worry destroy us? And finally, what are we to do with our worry? Felipe, why do we worry? Uh, Why do we worry? That's a great question. (laughs) Um, The very first word that we read here in verse 6 is the word humble. And the word humble comes as a command. It's in the imperative. And that's why he says, humble yourselves. Now, uh, the reason why he starts off this section uh, with the word humble is is because all worry is self-inflicted, right? Uh, No one is making you worry. You're the one that is worrying, and you're the one that's suffering from that worry. And what Peter assumes, and we talked a, a little bit about this last week, is uh, that at the root of 
all self-inflicted pain, and in this case, worry, there is this concept of, of, of arrogance. There's the presence of pride. I mean, all of us have an idea of how our lives should go. You have an idea of how your life should go, and sometimes you have an idea of how other people's lives should go. You know, I've met people that uh, they said, you know, this person has a wonderful plan for your life, right? Uh, you, you, you all know people like that. And uh, when we worry, we worry because uh, we are afraid that uh, things will not unfold in the way in which we are expecting them to unfold, that things would stop our plans, that things will disturb our plans, that things will thwart our plans, and, and, and they won't become a reality as we expect them to be. And the same happens uh, in our relationship with God. You know, the reason why we worry is because we are afraid that God is just not going to get it right. Mm -hmm. That's why we worry. So at the root of worry, there is arrogance. And so that's why he starts with this command to humble yourselves before God. See, I, I, I hear that a lot of people uh, have said that, you know, worrying or anxiety is a mild form of atheism. There is some truth to that, that uh, worry is functional atheism, meaning that you don't believe or you're functionally not believing that God exists. But I, I actually think of it a little differently. I think that worry is not just believing that good God does not exist, but believing that you're a better God than God. Uh, believe that you can do a better job in running the world and running your life and running other people's lives than God. Uh, you know, there's a funny story between uh, Martin Luther, the German reformer in the 1500s, and his sidekick, a man by the name of Philip Melanchthon. In fact, I don't know if you guys knew this, but I was named after Philip Melanchthon. My dad is a pastor, and he was a fan of Melanchthon. Melanchthon uh, was uh, the, the brains behind the Reformation. He was very prolixic. He was a writer. He was a systems guy. You know, he was an Enneagram type five, I think. That's who uh, Philip was. And there were times that he would come to Luther and he would say, I don't think this is going to work. I, I, don't, I, I think that we're going to be stopped. And Luther would put his hands on his shoulders. You know, now there's this distancing, right? Now we can't do that. But he would put uh, his hands on Philip's shoulders and, say, and it would say to him, let King Philip stop or cease from ruling the world. And so you got to stop, you know, taking God's job, taking on God's job. Stop trying to rule the world. That's the call here in this passage. You know, it reminds me of, uh, speaking of funny stories, uh, when my daughter, uh, Caitlin, was four, she split her chin uh, wide open because no matter how many times you tell your kids not to run by the pool or not to climb a tree or stick their hands in the toilet, they never listen. And so, uh, you know, sure enough, she gets out of the pool, she runs, she slips, she splits her chin. We rush her to urgent care, and, and I'm, I'm trying to calm her down. She's all anxious, and she's worried, and, and I'm just making stuff up at this point. I don't know what I'm telling her, but uh, as soon as we find out that she had to have traditional stitches, you know, her body tensed up. She was all worried and all anxious, and, and um, I'm sure the needle looked like, you know, something as big as an elephant to a four-year-old. And so uh, they started to stitch her up. She turned her face. She looked at me. And she wouldn't keep her eyes off of me. She never cried. She never winced, you know, once. And uh, not because of anything I said, thank God for that, <laughs> but because she knew she had her father's presence with her to comfort her 
uh, the whole time in a time, you know, four-year-old in a time of great crisis in her life. So she had absolutely nothing to worry about. Yeah, and so it makes me think of a question to ask, which is, why are we so worried? Mm-hmm. And what are we worried about? And what's the root of that, right? If we kind of inspect our lives, all of us have a host of things that can cause worry or anxiety. Relational issues and tension. It could be the future development of your kids and, and how they may pan out in the future. It could be the fear of finding romance one day. It could be job uncertainty. It could be fear of change or fear of no change. It could be the state of the nation. It could be the fear or the, the belief that you don't even trust yourself, your inability to even trust your own decisions, which causes you to worry. There's so many things that cause worry, but why do we worry? You know, Felipe, you said rightly at the beginning, it's, it's this arrogance, it's this pride. It's this need for us to feel like we're in control, to try to establish control, to establish control in our lives, to construct to establish control in the lives of others because we want the world to pan out the way that we want it according to our values and our vision and our desires. But all of us know that we are unable to do that. We can't establish control no matter how hard we try. We cannot make people's lives, you know, interact with us in the way that we would want. And so we worry. We get anxious. And oftentimes our first response to worry and anxiety is to think about patterns in our life that we can change. What are some healthy patterns that I can change? What are some practices that I can implement that can help me escape this worry, that can help relieve it or calm it? And there's professional options available as well that help us with worry to calm and to relieve some of that anxiety. And all of these things are good and all of these things are helpful, but none of these things will cure it. None of these things will just enable you just to no longer worry anymore. That is a fact of life as human beings. We worry, we struggle with anxiety. And our response is oftentimes first to try to find means to escape it. But a question I've been asking myself about worry as I've been looking into this text is, what if we came to realize that the ultimate aim of worry, of our worry, should not be to escape it, but to allow it to usher us into the presence of Christ? What if we didn't try to escape our worry, but we allowed our worry to usher us into the presence of Christ? That if our first response to worry was to cast it, as he says here in the passage, that if, if we took our worry and we centered it on Christ, we would see the circumference of our worry settle in. If we centered our worry on Christ as our first response, the circumference of our anxiety and worry would settle. You know, there's another great uh, theologian and pastor by the name of Charles Spurgeon who uh, God used in powerful ways of preaching the gospel of good news to bring revival through Great Britain. His sermons today are still transformative. He's an influence in this world even today. And he was a man who struggled deeply with worry and anxiety and wrote about it. And he has a great quote where he says, the trees bow in the wind, so must we. The trees bow in the wind, so must we. So what would it look like if our first response was to bow before Christ and then see the circumference of our worries settle as we hand it over to him? I think it's so important that we get this right. 
that we get our understanding of worry. Why do we worry? What's the root of it? That we, you know, think about it appropriately because the truth is, and this is our second point, is that worry has the power to destroy us. Mm -hmm. Worry can destroy us. How can your worry destroy you? There's a natural progression here in, from verse 6 to verse 8 through 10, where in verse 6 he says, humble yourselves. He says, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And then verse 8 through 10, look what he says. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. The progression here goes from humble, humble yourself because the root cause, why you worry, is because of pride, because of arrogance. And then he says that you need to understand the power of worry, that it can destroy you. In fact, worry is connected to satanic attacks. That one of the main strategies the devil uses to devour you is to feed you lies that cause you to worry that cause you to have anxiety. And if you struggle with anxiety and you're feeling worried even now, you know what happens when you're in that state. Truth gets distorted. You begin to feel even like you're in emotional and a mental fog. You begin to make choices that you would never otherwise make if you weren't in that worry and anxiety and kind of allowing that to fester in your mind because the devil, his strategy is to roar loudly in your head and in your heart that everything's not okay, that everything's out of control, that you need to establish control. And he feeds you these lies because worry does have the power to destroy. In fact, the word here, when he says be sober-minded, it's an important word. It's connected in the Greek to another word, which is drunkenness. So he's saying that when you worry, it's like you're in a drunk-like state. You don't think clearly. You don't see truth clearly. You make decisions that you would never otherwise make if you were sober. So he says, be watchful, be mindful, be sober-minded. And he says, resist him. That's an important word there in verse 9. Resist him. Resist these attacks because this is a strategy for the devil to devour you with your own worry. Resist him. But... Don't resist him in your own strength, because if you try to resist the attacks of Satan and the devil, the evil one trying to feed you lies and cause you to worry and anxiety, if you try to do it in your own strength, you will fail. He says, resist him firm in your faith. The word here connects to that of a soldier that stands ready for battle. Doesn't escape, doesn't run away, doesn't flee, is ready to fight, but not, as Peter says here, in his own strength, but firm in your faith. Why? Because when you stand firm in your faith in the midst of worry, you are reminded of truth. God begins to remind you of who he is. And Peter says that here in verse 10. After you've suffered a little while, as you resist him, as you stand firm in your faith, you're going to see what? The God of all grace. The God of all grace who actually is in control and has good plan for your life. And the God also who has called you into his eternal glory. A God who has set your future, that is secure, your fate is secure. That you cannot mess up your future that God has planned for you, and it is a future that is good, and it is eternal, and it is full of glory. That when you stand firm in your faith, you see the God of all grace, 
who has an eternal future set for you and who will himself, look at that, what he says, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The very things that you try to do in your own strength in the midst of worry and anxiety, try to restore yourself to confirm things that are true, try to strengthen yourself, you try to establish control, but when you stand firm in your faith, when you're sober-minded, you see a God of all grace who has eternal glory set for you, who he himself will confirm, restore, strengthen, and establish you. You see, worry has the power to destroy us, and we should not run from it. Rather, we should stand firm in our faith. Yeah, I'd like to do two things. One, I would like to take advantage of the illustration that he uses here in the text. And then I would like to jump into another illustration uh, to sort of bring home what you're saying here, Carter. Yeah. Uh, and in the text, the illustration here is of a roaring lion seeking a prey, right? You know, now we've watched the Animal Channel uh, enough to know um, how a lion attacks a group, how a lion attacks a herd. He's watching, he's hungry, he's watching, he's smart, he's a wise animal. That's why he's the king of the jungle. Uh, and and he's, he's, he's surrounding that herd, he's surrounding that group, and he identifies the weakest one in that group and the one that's closest to, to him, right? And, and usually there's a correlation because the weakest is usually the one that's lagging behind, that's the closest. And I like that uh, illustration because what Peter is, seems to be bringing out of that is that the weakest person in the Christian community, see, the devil is attacking not just us individuals, but the community, but the weakest person, the weakest link in the Christian community is the worrier, is the person who is filled with pride. Think about that. Man, that's a profound thought right there. You know, he's used, he's, his, his strategy is to find breaches in our lives and to exploit those breaches. That's how he comes in. You know, like back in ancient times, if you wanted to, if you were a conqueror, you wanted to invade a city, uh, you, you would go to that city and you would uh, examine the walls of that city and you would try to find uh, the weakest section of that wall and you would, after you would find that weak section of the wall, you would plan all your attacks on that specific section, right? That, that's how you would do it. And I'd like you to think about your life as a wall with a bunch of different sections. And some sections are more vulnerable than others, but there are breaches in your life. Uh, think of one section as the financial section of, of your life as a wall. Think of another section as uh, your romantic life. Think of another section of your wall as your work and your career and your vocation and your children. And you can, you know, obviously fill in the blanks there. And, and so you, you should ask the question, where is the weakest section in my wall, in my life? And, and here's where you will find the weakest section uh, of your wall, which is your life. You ready? It's that area of your life, like Carter said, that you are failing to believe the truths of the gospel because you're strengthened by faith and you're weakened by lack of faith, right? That's where you are failing to believe the truths of the gospel. So let me illustrate it. Or maybe I'll give one or two illustrations. I don't know. But think about work. Let's say work, your vocation, that, that section of your life is an area of your life that you're failing to believe the truths of the gospel, that you're not getting your sense of self-worth from 
what Christ has made you as a redeemed individual that is uh, loved by God, but you're getting your sense of self-worth from that which you're able to produce. See, the, the quality of your work becomes the measure of your worth. Mm-hmm. Let's say that that's the case in your life. If your source of value and identity comes from your work, and let's say you're failing in life, and you go to, to bed at night and you can't go to sleep. Why? Because, you know, you feel that you're losing a part of you. You're losing yourself because you have failed in your work. Or, or you're afraid of failing and your mind is running, you're anxious, you're worried. See, the devil knows that about you. and He takes that opportunity and he brings great failure into your life through your work in order to destroy you. Let's get the area of romance as well. Let's say that's a section of your wall, your romantic life. You don't feel loved by God through that which Jesus Christ has done for you, and therefore you always need somebody by your side in order to feel loved. You will not leave Tinder alone. Because you need somebody by your side, regardless of the depth of the relationship, in order to feel valued and loved. See, Satan knows that. He knows that. How is he going to bring destruction in your life? How is he going to attack you? Because you're failing to believe the gospel there, he's going to bring a relationship into your life that's going to be utterly codependent and destructive. That's how it works. And therefore, the way in which you strengthen your walls and you close the breaches is by, like he says here in verse 9, firm in your faith by believing deeply the gospel truths. That's how it works. Well, he gives us one last encouragement in the next verse. Verse 11, he says, to him, the God of all grace, be dominion forever and ever. God has dominion over the roaring lion and and he promises us to get Amen. us through the the jungle of this world where 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 we're going all of these things that trouble us now all of these things that that got us you know filled with anxiety and worrying uh, us now they're not allowed to follow these things that that are that are weighing us down now they're not allowed to enter in the where we're going ultimately glory all this fear all this anxiety is going to be be replaced with glory and peace, all the afflictions, all of the tears, all of the pain will be gone. And so as, as we're journeying through, through difficult days ahead, and there will be some difficult days ahead of us, right? While we fight our adversary, we face those times when we're burdened with worry and fear and, and, and anxiety. Always remember that God's grace is sufficient for you. God never promised, church, to flatten every hill. God never promised to, to smooth out every rough spot. What he has promised is that when you're going through these uh, moments of crises and anxiety and worry, is to stand right there along with you and walk alongside with you. And he promises you so that you're, to be with you so that your walk can be successful in him. Listen to what uh, P- Paul says in Colossians. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up, Paul says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body. And he says that is the church. Christ died for, for millions and millions of people here. People in your neighborhoods, church. People in your jobs. People in your families. Their debt has been paid. 
but they don't know it. They can't taste it. They can't feel it. They can't sing the songs that, that we sing you know, every day, particularly when we gather on Sunday, this coming Sunday, right? Uh, when we open up corporately, we sing songs. What's, what's missing? There's something that's not, not connecting. It's the, it's the, it's the suffering. It's the, the presentation of it. And so if we're going to be missionaries, and by the way, all of us are missionaries. All of us, mark it down, pain, loss, strife, tension. It's not that it might come. It's going to come. And like we all said last week, don't think of it as strange when it comes. It's going to happen. It's the price. He paid his life for our salvation. And when we join him, when we join Jesus in that suffering, we do it to display the nature of it. Let me ask you a question. If you, if you want to experience deep joy in knowing that you're loved by God, you know what you do? You lay your life out for another person. You take risks with your money. You take risks with your, with your mind, with your intellect. And if we're going to have the courage to be humble, because humility causes anxiety. I'm going to lose face. I'm not going to be appreciated. I'm not going to be loved. It causes anxiety. If we're going to have, if we're going to have courage to be humble and, and the boldness to, 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 to cast all of our cares to God, something's got to take our worry away. Which leads us to the last thing here. What are we to do with our worry? And he says it in verse 7. Cast all of our worries unto God because he cares for you. How do we do that? How do we, how do we transfer our anxiety from us to God? And the answer is trust that he cares for you. Believe that he cares for you. Believe this promise. Trust him because he cares about the thing that's got you worrying. He cares about it. If you believe that he cares for you and you believe that he's God, then your fears, God promises, will be lifted. If you don't believe that he cares for you, right, if you don't believe that and you hold on to your worry and you hold on to your anxiety, it's probably because you think you can carry it all by yourself, which means, by the way, one hindrance to casting our worries to God is, is, is the very thing that Peter says at the end of verse 5. We didn't read it, but it's the very thing that God opposes, which is pride. Pride is, is, is self-reliance. Pride is self-satisfaction. Pride considers uh, itself above instruction. Pride is insubordinate. It, it exalts itself in being made much of. Pride refuses to trust in God. Pride tells us, hey, you know what? The, uh, the posture of trust is too weak. It's too dependent. It's, 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 you know, it draws too much attention to the strength and the wisdom of another person. And when pride keeps us from trusting God and caring or believing that he cares for us, two things happen. One, we have a false sense of security when, 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 when we think, based on our own imagined power and wisdom, that we can, you know, we got this when we're facing whatever catastrophe we're facing. And two, when we realize that we can't guarantee our own security and our own safety, we end up feeling what? We end up feeling anxious and worried. And so, and so in what way should we humble ourselves? Answer, by casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you, which means the humblest thing you can ever do as a Christian, the humblest thing you can ever do is by trusting that God has the, the power to care for you and the wisdom to put that care to work in the most glorious of ways. Amen. Makes me think of um, an illustration. I've, I've shared this before, but as a kid, um, I always liked cast net fishing more than actual fishing because I felt like I had a higher chance of actually catching fish when they're on the surface and you throw it out. I don't know if you ever... So did the, the, the disciples. Yeah, they liked it too. That's why. That's actually why because they wanted to feel connected to the disciples and Jesus. Uh, but I remember, you know, casting as a kid and learning how to do it. If you've ever done it before, you know, you have the net and you kind of pull it up and you hold it and then you hold onto the, the string of the leash of it, the cord. You throw it out where you see the fish on the surface and it 
the weights fall down and you pull it back in. And, and oftentimes when you're cast netting, you, you have to do it many, many times, right? Because you miss the target, it's a moving target, you find a new place on the seawall or the boat to throw it, and then you reel it in. And this is not the type of casting that Peter's talking about here. But it's often the type of casting that we employ with this very famous verse, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, which is a casting where maybe in a worship service or maybe during a sermon or maybe at home in prayer in your time of personal worship, you're feeling anxious, you're feeling worried, and you cast it to God in prayer. You cast it to God in worship, but you're still holding on to it. You're still attached to it. You still have that cord. And so as you throw it to God, you're not really truly casting it. You're holding on to it. You're having that sense of control because you wonder, God, do you, are you really going to provide? Are you really going to help me with my anxiety? Are you really going to take it away from me? And so we throw it out to God. We cast it on God. Then we pull it back in. A couple days go by. Weeks go by. We don't feel, you know, it's like, God, I guess the promise didn't work for me. So I pull it back in. I'm going to throw it on someone else. I'm going to throw it on something else. I'm going to try something else because I threw it to you, God. I prayed. I worshiped. I cast it on you. Nothing happened. So I pulled it back in and I tried another practice or pattern or person to take it. And Peter is saying here that when you cast your anxiety, when you cast your anxiety, church, on God, you let it go. There's no cord. There's no attachment. You're throwing it all to him. And it's not a moving target because you're throwing it on Christ, the rock. You're firm in your faith, as you said, Felipe, remembering the truths of the gospel, and you cast it on God, not, as you said, Sam, with the promise that God is just going to remove it immediately or that he's going to fix you immediately. That's not the promise. The promise is when you cast your anxiety and your worry upon God, knowing he cares for you, you receive something much better than an immediate resolution. You see, the promise of casting your anxiety on God is not the promise of immediate resolution. It is the promise of a relationship. It's a promise of nearness. It is a promise of the presence of God, knowing he's near to you as you begin to see the God of all grace. So church, cast your anxieties upon God because he cares for you, not because he's going to fix it immediately, but because there's going to be nearness in that relationship through faith in Christ as you hand it over to him, no strings attached. Mm. And so the question now is, how do you do that? Um, there was a German philosopher, theologian by the name of Martin Heidegger, and Martin Heidegger had this word that he would throw around in his writings and in his lectures, Geworfenai. I don't good. speak German. That was good. Geworfenai. God yeah. bless you. If you, you speak German, you're probably, wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he butchered yeah. the word. But Geworfenai means to be thrown out of nothingness. It's a word for purposelessness. Um, I don't know that there's an English word that translates it well. But he used that word to describe uh, life without God. It's purposeless. And that's how it feels sometimes when your anxieties are not cast on God, but are cast on others, or they just, you know, roam around your head and roam around your soul. There, it's, there's purposelessness. Nothing can be done with it. And that's why Jesus says, I do not worry. The Sermon of the Mount. Because it's harmful to others. It's harmful to you. There's no purpose in it. Now, the hope of the gospel is that 
uh, through Jesus, our lives are repurposed. And everything that we can do or we're able to do finds a new purpose, including worrying. So that's why this text is such good news to us, which is that even our worries, when we cast them to God, there's purpose in it. Why? Because I am surrendering my arrogance. I am following Luther's advice, right? I cease from ruling the world. And I open myself to learn from Jesus and to receive from him. I trust that he's going to do something good with that which preoccupies my mind, that which takes over my thought life. I, I trust that I've, if I keep it to myself, there's purposelessness, Gevorf and I. But, but if, I, if I cast it onto him, there can be purpose found in it. And the reason why I can be assured, you and I can be assured that there's purpose, that he will do something good with the worries that you cast on him today is the cross. On the cross, Jesus threw himself onto God. On the cross, Jesus threw his worries and his cries onto God. On the cross, he asked why. Did you forget that? That on the cross, Jesus asked why as he was suffering, as he was in pain. And he was not heard. And his worries were taken by the Father, but instead of his life being recouped or being restored, he was crushed. His life fell apart on the cross. And the reason why, when Jesus cast himself onto God on the cross, instead of being rescued, instead of being restored, he was crushed, was so that when you and I today cast our worries upon God, that we would be heard, that we would be cared for. Jesus did that in our place. He experienced givorphani, nothingness on the cross, so that we could experience purpose and we can be healed and we can be restored. Today, as we cast our worries to God, we can do that and we are assured that we will be heard. We, will, we are assured that we, can be, that we will be cared because of Jesus, because of the cross. And so today, I, I'd like to close our time together by reading a section of the Sermon of the Mount, sermon that Jesus preached, uh, probably the best sermon ever. I want to read from uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 34. And so as I'm reading, the passage obviously will be on the screen. And I just want you to meditate on this. I just want you to hear Jesus saying this to you today. The Jesus that has died for you, the Jesus uh, that experienced uh, purposelessness on the cross. People looked and said, how can God be bringing anything good out of this? The disciples were stressed out and anxious and worried, but he did that so that we would be hurt, so that we would be cared for. And here are his words for you today. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day, it's its own trouble. Think about this. If Jesus cared for your greatest need on the cross, why would he not care for your everyday needs? Let's pray. Uh, Father, we are grateful for this promise that we can take our worries and we can cast them on you. We're not casting the good on you, we're casting our, our bad, our shortcomings, our pride, our arrogance. And Father, we, we are rewarded for doing that. That's what the promise says here, that if we do that, we will be freer, we will be heard, our needs will be met. And so, Father, help each faithless heart here today to trust you enough to cast their worries onto you because you do care. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.